Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Pushing diversity in the business world is Harlem Capital's mission. Hi, I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we have the fortune of hearing about Jared Tingle's investment experience before graduate school, how he recognizes diversity as an asset class, and the qualities and habits he looks for in founders and venture partners. I'm pleased to welcome Jared Tingle. He is managing partner, co-managing partner at Harlem Capital Partners here in New York City. And the firm has a mission. It is to change the face of entrepreneurship. How? By investing in 1,000 diverse-led businesses in 20 years. Jared got his MBA at Harvard Business School in 2019. Prior to that, he worked at ICV Partners, a minority-owned private equity firm. Jared, thank you so much for joining us for this month's Thanks edition of Cornell Tech. Um, looking at your bio, which I gave a brief synopsis of, you've been in finance for your entire professional life. Uh, you studied economics and finance at Wharton at Penn. Uh, you were in investment banking at Barclays for two years. You moved to PE for two years before you co-founded Harlem Capital. But your original plan in life was to be an engineer. So what changed your mind? <laughs> so I actually did a program at MIT uh, the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. So um, I learned a lot there, six week, pretty intensive program. Uh, but I was pulling all-nighters, and as a high school student, I wasn't that happy about it. And I realized that even though I liked the curriculum, I didn't like the process around trying to get to an answer. And you can get 95% there, but if you weren't 100% there, it wasn't good enough. Um, I realized I wanted to use my, my people skills, wanted a little bit more balance and experience. And so after that, that summer, I realized that business would be the, the definite career for me. And so instead of applying to MIT, I decided to go to or try to apply to Wharton for early decision, and, and fortunately, I got in. Okay, and from there on, you made history. Let's talk about how your interest in finance took shape. What did you envision you're going to be doing in finance, and are you surprised with where you ended up? I like to take things one step at a time, and so my um, I come from a low-income background. None of my family worked in finance, so I've always been trying to figure out along the way. Uh, I was fortunate that at Penn, there was a lot of people that went into finance or consulting. And so I had a ton of mentorship. So my first step was, let me get in the door at an investment bank. I know I'll learn skills. I'll learn how to model. I'll learn how to do memos. I'll learn how to do research. And I'll learn how to just be analytical and also just work in a corporate setting. And if that works out, then I'll be just fine. Um, and if, you know, if it worked out well, I would like it and I would stay. If not, I would have transferable skills that I could use for, for something else. But actually my first week on the job, the, the class above me, the analyst class above me sat me down and said, hey, you gotta go to private equity. And so within you know a week on the job, I was already angling for private equity career. So that was my first foray into investing and I, I was happy with that decision. Why private equity? I mean, that's it's very niche compared to say the stock market or the bond market um, or investment banking. Sure. So, I mean, a lot of junior talent in investment banking doesn't necessarily intend to stay in investment banking. I mean, we all know about the long hours and the work style, and ultimately it's a client-driven business. So even though there's a lot of great um, aspects of the job and you have a lot of chance to work on large transactions, 
in terms of your controlling your own fate, you know, being a true principal rather than an agent, right? It's just, it is good to have some agency. Uh, so I do think that's the aspiration that many folks have coming into investment banking. Uh, but for me, I felt like if I was able to get in, it would just be a more stimulating job that I would find more interesting, actually investing in companies, helping them grow. You know, there is a chance to have ownership and equity in these companies rather than just doing transactions. And so I did see that as being an attractive path that was supplemented by the dynamics around me. Okay. So you worked at investment banking Barclays for a number of years, then you moved on to PE and you uh, went to ICV, this middle market private equity firm where you met Harlem Capital's other managing partner. And I'm going to butcher this because I don't speak French, Henri Pierre Jacques uh, right. at the firm. Okay. What initially drew you to each other and laid the groundwork for you two going off to start your own thing? So fortunately we were friends beforehand. Um, so I'd known him since 2011 we were in a program for diverse talent in, in college. And so even though he was at Northwestern, I was at Penn, we met um, before that. And we were actually roommates during uh, during college between uh, our junior and senior years of college. So I was working at Barclays. He was working at Bama. And we got to know each other then, stayed friends throughout the city. Um, did definitely get closer after we realized we both were at ICV. I actually ran into him in a final round interview and I'm like, oh man, is there one spot? Is there two spots? Fortunately, we both got it. Um, and from there it was great because we had a chance to work for a black owned private equity firm that does middle market transactions, great work experience, great team, but they definitely emphasize people. They definitely treated us fairly and they were focused on developing us into being great professionals. Uh, so it was a great stomping ground to just learn the tricks of the trade. And very few people have the opportunity to work for diverse ran private equity funds. So we like to say you can't be what you don't see. And we knew we were gonna do well, but having the ability to work under people that look like us encouraged us to take our own step and eventually start our own fund. Didn't know it would be you know, so soon, but definitely uh, provided that, that opportunity set and that vision for us. Yeah, you're lucky because you started off right where you wanted to be in, in a place where uh, you were really valued from the get-go. You co-founded Harlem Capital in 2015, and originally it was meant to be an angel syndicate uh, to make investments with some of your friends. Tell us a little bit about the first investment you made and whether you went out to go seek it or whether it kind of came to you. Yeah, so our, our first startup investment was a company called CTX. Um, so they are a commodity exchange that was focused on non-traditional commodities like hemp, and eventually if it became legal at the federal level, it would be cannabis. Um, so we thought that was a good option play at the time. This was 2016 and things early 2016 before the election and things looked pretty, pretty good for the market. Um, so we actually got in through an SPV that another uh, VC that we know pretty well was was running. And so we had a lot of good data, good memorandums and stuff like that. And we felt like the market dynamics were, were, were great. Um, the challenge was that we didn't have a direct relationship with management. And it also, you know, wasn't a space that we knew super well. So it was it was a bet, right? We I think we invested 15K all together and we learned. Um, it worked out fine. What happened is they didn't actually end up going to market. They um, were trying to get regulatory approval and given the administration change in 2016, uh, it just became a lot more dim. They actually mm -hmm. realized the market dynamics were different than they expected. So we ended up getting our money back. Uh, and we learned a lot of good lessons. I mean, one of the things is if we're going to be VCs, you want to be active and we have to have a direct relationship with management, but not a, a bad first deal to, to learn a little bit from others. Uh, and 
over time, we would define our strategy to be more focused on diverse women entrepreneurs, but also markets that we understood and didn't require a lot of regulatory approval. So it was a valuable investment from that point of view. Um, I want to get into the diversity a little bit later on, but two years into Harlem Capital, you guys pivoted from this angel syndicate to a venture fund. What does that mean in practice? Because I know that both angel funds and venture funds invest in startups and startups are by nature high risk. How do you invest differently as an angel fund versus a venture fund? Sure. As an angel fund, you're investing in startups, which is your own capital generally. And then with VC funds, you're managing institutional capital. So that's the biggest difference. You're still probably investing in similar companies. Um, the transition was we invested in six startups over two and a half years. So slow rolling it, learning, building out our network of other firms and other people, uh, building out our sourcing pipelines so we could actually know that we were seeing high quality things. Uh, but the biggest change was raising capital. Um, so Henri and I were at ICV for two years, uh, running Harlem Capital along the way. We get to Harvard Business School. We're still recruiting. We don't know that this is gonna be our business. Uh, but instead of going uh, into an internship between our first and second year, we decided to try to raise a fund. Uh, it was not easy at all, but that was really the, the big shift. Um, so we actually did a super small close of $2 million in November of 2018, and then we were a fund. Instead of writing 25K checks, now writing 250K checks. Um, there's definitely more weight because you're investing other people's money and you're accountable. You have to report rather than just investing your own money. But the good news is you can get a better connection with management, the CEO, because you're giving them more money. Uh, you have more rights, like you have information rights and you're seeing higher quality deals. What we realized was that there can be adverse selection as an angel. Um, if you're an angel who has started a company or spun out of a big company and you're in a super robust network, you may see the next Uber. Most won't though. If you're an average person working in finance, there's no reason for that company to take your money outside of a personal connection. Uh, so we realized that like everything was working in a better direction because we had more capital, more rights, better network, et cetera. Got it. More capital equals just more access and, and a wider network overall. Going to that diversity point you were making, when did you first realize how big a gap there is between minority founders and non-minority founders when it comes to fundraising? I mean, I think we all can pretty much say that it's conventional wisdom. We all suspect that, but at what point did you realize, wow, that gap is massive? Sure, we we um, we realized it anecdotally first. Um, when we were starting to source opportunities as an angel syndicate, we realized that we had plenty of diverse people in our networks. You know, we went to schools, we had diverse friends, we were in, you know, programs like MLT, SEO, Twigo that were all around diverse talent pipelines. And so we knew tons of smart cable people that we were peers with that were starting companies. Uh, the companies were having great growth, usually. I had been around uh, or past the product market fit phase, but they were having a tougher time raising money. Uh, maybe it takes them twice as long, maybe they get half the amount they want. And we realized that there was an issue and we kept peeling back the onion. Uh, the other the other part of that was we were literally 25 year olds writing small checks we were getting asked to speak on panels and so it, it hit us it's like wait a second perhaps there is challenges for diverse folks raising money because there's lack of representation which explains why they're having a tougher time but also why people care so much that we're not doing that much but they're elevating us because we're one of the few out there um we actually started doing our own research because what we found was that there was very little research done by by race 
Um, you know, Pitchbook Crunchbase at the time didn't track it. Crunchbase just started this last summer after George Floyd and, and some of those movements. Um, and so we really had to just do our own thing and realize and do our own research. So we actually found over 200 Black and Latinx founders that raised over a million dollars. So that you know, validated that the pipeline is strong, even though we knew it, we wanted to just back it up with data. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, when we just thought about the dynamics in the industry, uh, you know, VC firms, they don't turn over that much. They're focused on the power law. They're focused on trying to pattern match for the next, you know, Zuckerberg, et cetera. We just thought that it made sense um, t- to really dive deep. Uh, and the last thing was at the early stage, there's still so much uncertainty. You know, you're really taking a bet on people, their vision, their hunger, their analytical ability, all these things that need to be proven out over time. And if you don't have people that are in your corner that are going to listen to you in a fair way, there's no reason they're going to work with you. You can always say no to an investment. Um, so we really think you actually do need particularly good representation on the early stages to help people get capital and get downstream to build their company. Yeah, I can't count how many times on Cornell Tech at Bloomberg, we've talked to uh, investors who say that you're really betting on founders, you're betting on people rather than their ideas, because the ideas shift over time or they get repackaged or reformulated. Um, In every interview you do, I've seen you quote statistics on the share of VC funding that women and minority led businesses get and how, how much they raise. What did it look like when you first started the firm? And do you think the needle has moved to to something different now? So the stat we quoted was there's 3% of VC funding that all women and people of color get uh, out of compared to being 70% of the population. That has ticked up to 4%. It's still Mm -hmm. not a lot. So we are seeing more deals get done. uh, But when you think about the overall capital flows, it is weighted downstream at the the later stage levels. And we're seeing tons of opportunities to see stage. There definitely hasn't been anywhere close to enough you know, series A, B, C, and beyond founders of color. We are seeing bright spots though. I mean, Compass is filing for an IPO. Um, City Block Health is now a unicorn. We see Calendly out of Atlanta. This was just raised a $3 billion valuation, so it's coming. But the biggest challenge was that people of color and women weren't really getting VC funding until 2013. Before that, you know, it didn't happen. And if there isn't capital at the early stages and there's not following capital, it's gonna take a long time. Um, because it does take seven, 10 years to get to that unicorn or extra scenario. And so it's it's a, a, a really big lag, even though things have been moving in the right direction. So we're we're seeing better deals. We're seeing, you know, more frequently deals. But again, the capital flows still have been, you know, underrepresented for, for our, our demographics. I love how you explain that. You really pull back the curtain on how long things take and how it shakes out. And it's not something that people in the industry often are that open about. Um, you've talked about diversity as an asset class. Is this a new concept? We think it is. Um, so we like to compare it to impact investing. You know, 10 years ago, folks were wondering, hey, is this a real strategy? Can you actually make money? Do you have to sacrifice returns? And the answer is, it absolutely is an asset class. And so you've seen big firms like TPG who are affiliated with, they have their anchor in fund one. They have a, a big fund called the Rise Fund that does impact investing. And we've seen other institutional firms do it. We're saying that same thing should apply. There's no reason why 70% of the population can't have much more share of VC capital, much more than 4%. Like it just doesn't even intuitively make sense. Um, and a population of diverse founders is only growing. Um, but with the challenge is that there hasn't been capital historically. And so you have tons of smart people that haven't even considered it as an option, right? They're choosing to do other things. 
So our, our strategy is around, you know, investing in diverse entrepreneurs, helping to create more diverse investors through our intern program. So not only building our own team, but help people get into other VC firms. And the last part is being visible. So you mm -hmm. want people to know that we exist, that we, there's plenty of diverse talent on the VC and the entrepreneur side. Um, and so those people that are trying to decide, hey, do I go this route? You know that it's a really uh, good opportunity and there will be support if you decide to go that route. You mentioned TPG. Do Does TPG and your other investors, do they think about diversity as an asset class uh, as well? Or is this something that you help them realize? Something that we help them realize. I mean, I think we, we tell a compelling story. Uh, you know, we're uniquely qualified to, to, to execute on this option. Um, but I think they believe it, um, but we're still early days. It's early innings and, you know, we have to prove it out. So even though we've done everything right, we still have to get returns. And I think they're kind of waiting on us. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have seen, you know, institutional firms make some steps. Um, you know, Andreessen has a, a fund. Uh, focus on diverse entrepreneurs. We see SoftBank has a fund. You know, these aren't core funds, but they have signaled that there are institutional movements to realize this. I mean, I think the overall, you know, aim is that you do have more diverse GPs, period, that are focused on diverse folks. But you also just have main funds for big firms that are investing in these founders at a higher rate. Like we need all fronts executing on this. Uh, so I, I still think it, it will take some time. You know, TPG is a growth firm and a buyout firm. So at that stage, there's still not, still not going to be enough opportunity. But if we're successful, uh, there will be a lot more opportunities and, and hope that you know, more people follow us into this market. Do you think one day it'll be something where these firms will allocate X percent of their capital to diversity as an asset class on its own? Un unclear. I don't know. I don't know. It's tough to say. I mean, what we want to do is allocate funding and portions of the population. And we hope mm -hmm. that everyone does it. Um, there are so many other factors at play for these later stage firms. I think if you've been around 20, 30, 40 years, it's tougher to move the ship. If you're a new firm, you can do everything right from day one. Um, you know, and we respect everyone and how they make money, but if anything, it gives us more opportunity set because if folks aren't focused on it yet, it means there's more uh, opportunities for us to, to really own this market. Okay, got it. Now, um, I mentioned TPG. Also, Apple has invested in you guys as well, it, announcing a $10 million commitment to Harlem Capital. How did that come about? Were you surprised by it, or was this something that you were working towards already? We got introduced by one of our HBS classmates. Uh, he introduced us to the head of his firm, it's a top Silicon Valley VC firm. And we, we met this founder of this firm, and uh, at one point he just emailed us and said, Hey, like I heard Apple is trying to allocate diverse managers. Do you guys want to intro? We're like, yes. <laughs> uh, so we met them, I think in October and it happened pretty quickly. Um, so they announced this initiative, their Reggie initiative, uh, racial equity, um, and justice initiative over the summer. We actually didn't hear about it somehow. Uh, but because we, we got connected with this founder of this VC firm, he thought of us, we, we talked, we, we, uh, were able to get through the process. And they they committed to to invest with us. Wow, there's that HBS networking paying off in every way. Um, you mentioned how you didn't come from a wealthy family and you didn't necessarily have a safety net growing up. On paper, to you, the economics of starting a Harlem Capital didn't make any sense um, because of that background you had. How did you make peace with that? It was a very tough decision. Um, so just, to, I mean. I came out of college. Fortunately, um, I was receiving full financial aid for high school and college. So was starting at a decent place after that. 
worked in in you know investment banking and private equity so was getting paid you know well out of school but then i go to business school where i have 200k plus of debt and so that basically wiped my net worth out completely um and we did a lot of angel investing as well so i just wasn't liquid um so you know on paper the the highest expected value would be to go back into private equity where i could literally know my earnings i would be doing well if i stayed there for a few years and then eventually i'll work my way up and do just fine um so that was you know what what made sense uh from a, like a math basis you know venture capital is a, t- it's a tough business um where you know you, you try to raise a fund but usually first time funds are small um when we were starting out you know we saw people that we knew that were 40 years old raising 40 or 30 million dollar funds like if you think about that and what the management fee is you can only support like max two people with a comfortable salary in new york city and so the economics weren't attractive it really does take a long period of time and it takes performance and carried interest to really make it a lucrative path yeah. um and there was uncertainty around that um and so what i did was i just tried to dig deep and actually i did apply to big firms there was one firm i wanted to work at in particular um, but i didn't get to the final round i could have worked somewhere but i figured if i did all this and i was betting on myself there's no reason for me to you know um settle at right. the same time we we're getting good traction with, uh, with harlem capital and he's like i don't know how this math is going to work but i see an opportunity um and i think the fact you were able to build it out while we were in private equity and while we were in business school helped because it's not like I was out having to pay bills when we were raising money it was like we could do it I still had a, a living accommodations I still had you know the safety net of HBS and the worst thing that could happen was it doesn't work out and I go recruit again so that's really how I thought about it I was still scared um, we still have to put up money and invest in the fund um, it's not something to take lightly at all I mean we got lucky it worked out there's tons of people that it doesn't work out for uh, but fortunately, we got enough support early enough that it, it laid at the stage. But you know, I, I I don't I don't take it lightly. You know, we got lucky, and it doesn't always work out that way for folks. And sometimes um, timing plays into it as well because you're already building on this firm, and you were doing, you're, you know, you were you're uh, you've identified your mission in terms of investing in diverse founders, and then the summer of 2020 came along, Black Lives Matter, that kind of changed the landscape. The the level of corporate awareness just shot up. And there was this urgency around your mission. How did that change the trajectory of your company? So we actually didn't, things didn't change that much after the summer for us personally. Uh, we had been focused on this since late 2015. We had built up our platform. You know, we've been, our, our core has been investing in women and people of color. So that hasn't changed. I think that the biggest change this summer was that, you know, more mainstream, more established funds have been focused on it. So you see, uh, the funds I mentioned earlier that are trying to invest in more diverse founders, you are seeing you know higher frequency of founders getting rounds done faster at better valuations, so terms are increasing. You know we think Horizon Tile lifts all boats. Um, you know even if we're not investing in a deal, it is helpful for us to have more founders that are being successful um, because they will encourage others, they'll refer us deals, etc. Um, I think the biggest change is that um, you know for downstream capital, I think we have a better positioning where. Firms will take a real look at our founders uh, because they'll be, you know, hopefully conscious that they should invest in more diverse teams. Um, the corporate support has been great. Um, I hope it's long term. You know, sometimes things uh, happen in waves, and like you may be, you know, the topic of the year, and then there's less support. So we have been pushing everyone we've been talking to to continue to back funds over time. Um, but yeah, if anything, it's just elevated our profile. You know, we saw a huge 
increase in in our feeds and and, and likes and views and stuff in June. Uh, mm -hmm. But in general, it's hard to separate that from just our growing success now that we're we're more established of a firm. Right. There might be something that takes a couple of years to to bear out as well to to see um, a material change. I want to get to um, diversity within your company and in the companies that you invest in. Um, there's obviously a lot of research out there that uh, shows diverse organizations do better over time, better returns, long-term long -term returns. Um, you're investing com in companies though at a very early stage when they're startups. When do you think we'll likely start, we'll likely see a difference in performance in a company's life cycle? At what point does that outperformance start to show up? You mean diverse led firms versus non-diverse led yeah, firms? Yeah, the, the fact that a company is diverse and it's got diverse leadership, when does that start to play out? Yeah, so we, we never made the case that diverse led companies will outperform. You know, we hope that they do. We're, mm. we're not making that case. We've only made the case that these founders are underfunded. Um, they don't even have the opportunity to create uh, companies usually. And we thought that because they're underrepresented, there's so many ideas and markets that aren't being tapped into. Um, if you think about it, people have different life experiences, different needs, different points of view. And if they're given capital, the best and brightest, they will be able to start and just change things. And we talked about how you know AI and different things weren't adequately working for people of color and things like that. So that's the case we made because we don't have enough data to say otherwise. I have seen some stats that you know public companies and diverse boards outperform, but like. We're talking about early stage companies. Yeah. Um, as we went through time, we did see some good insight. I mean, mass gen. Um, there's a mass gen challenge that uh, in a report that BCG wrote. I think they did over. They looked at over 400 companies, and they found that the women-led companies, at least, um, had higher revenue after only raising half the funding. So that was a positive thing. We're definitely capital efficient because we have to be. Uh, First Round Capital did a 10-year study, and they found that the women-led companies outperformed. The challenge when you think about this from a racial lens is that the data set and the sample size is so small, you can't even begin to uh, <laughs> to really compare. Uh, but Kaufman Fellows, they did do a great report with Marlon Nichols at Mac MacVC, and he found that diverse teams, and again, it's bucketed women and people of color, that at least you know if one of the co-founders is diverse, they did generate higher returns. Uh, but again, that's not the case we're making. We hope it's true. The case mm -hmm. we were making, though, is they're underfunded. Uh, the valuations usually aren't as high. They're not getting money just to start ideas. They actually have to prove real traction. So we definitely saw inefficiencies in the market and we saw alpha opportunities, mainly because the market wasn't pricing them appropriately um, at the beginning. Right. Uh, hopefully the outcomes outperform, but it, even if they don't, we'll, we'll be very successful because we are seeing the, the best founders of these groups. Yeah, no, I guess I was thinking of the, the the research on the publicly traded companies on diverse leadership. But you do bring up an interesting point, which is this idea that um, most funds that are focused on diversity are looking at gender diverse companies um, as opposed to racial diverse companies. Talk a little bit about that, because that's a distinction you make and not enough people think of it in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's see. On the gender side, I mean, it's just easier. I mean, uh, because you can, I guess, more easily put people in the algorithm. You can make inferences about their name and, and obviously how they present socially and decide if they're a man or a woman. People have been less inclined to code by race. I mean, you, you, you're not going to ask somebody, uh, you know, in a survey or anything. And then some people were afraid to, to guess. I mean, we think you can't measure what you don't manage. It's not perfect when we do our own analysis, but usually, 
what matters less is you know how you identify and more what matters is how the world sees you because that's going to influence how people treat you and how how much you raise capital um so that's really the distinction we've been trying to make we we want you know data source to code by it fortunately crunchbase now codes by race which add, add some some data behind it uh but i think people have shied away from it so if you're worried about lawsuits if you're mm -hmm. worried about you know getting it wrong people say okay well i don't want to do anything we're going to be colorblind here but then you see the same patterns persist where people of color are locked out so we do think there needs to be more thoughtful analysis we've seen some studies where people uh, you know run names they run searches on images they look at zip codes and you basically can have you know 85 90 percent confidence interval that someone is a certain background but we think that's enough because again even if people don't say it they're definitely making analysis on you know what race you are so we think that you know more thoughtful analysis needs to be done even if it's you know people self-identifying and you will see more trends that matter but i think hopefully given this this was happening in the last year people are, are, are leaning in more and are being very explicit like before mm -hmm. you know june you weren't hearing people say hey you want to black we want to back black funds and in, in black uh, startups you just weren't hearing that at all uh so we do think it's a move in the right direction Okay, got it, got it. Um, I also want to touch on this idea about how you've talked about how a fund's approach to diversity should really track every step of the process, um, from sourcing investments and founders to the ultimate investment decisions overall. That's a lot of steps along the way. At what step do you think it's hardest to maintain diversity or to, to focus on diversity? Is there a step at which it's, a, it's an extra obstacle or it, it's particularly challenging? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's that hard. Um, it's not hard for us. I mean, you, as a fund, you already have to track all the deals you see uh, because you have to report out to your investors. And so you're tracking the company name, tracking the founder name, the industry, probably the stage, uh, the revenue, the, you know, what, what geography it's in. How hard is it to add another column for race and gender? Like, it's not that hard. You know, maybe you don't want to do it. Maybe because you're afraid if you record it, your stats are going to be awful. Uh, but we do think you have to measure it or it's never going to change. Um, so I don't think the, the data collection part is that difficult. Uh, the challenge is that, you know, firms, a lot of firms are referral only uh, in practice. So, you know, a lot of firms don't have their website, uh, their emails on their website. They're only getting warm introductions from their network. And if you're only investing in Silicon Valley firms, folks that graduate from Harvard or Stanford or spun out of big tech companies, yes, your network's not going to be diverse. So people have said there's a pipeline program, pipeline uh, problem. There is none. Uh, but if you are fishing in the same pond, then you may think so. After that, though, you have to see, you know, how people convert it to your funnel. And some firms don't pay attention to it at all. They're just saying, hey, like, here's a company we like. Here's a company we invest in. Uh, but we look at different segments. We look at, okay, who do we take a first call with? Who do we do further due diligence with? Who do we actually do uh, an investment memo with and take to our partner meeting? And, you know, not all firms collect that data. But we do think it's essential because if you don't track that, uh, you don't know where your biases are. Uh, we found early on, on our own, that we were passing on women at a higher rate for being too early. And once we identified that, we changed it, and now it wasn't an issue. But if we never looked at the data, we would never know. No one could ever hold us accountable, but that's a bias we would have had. So until you actually look at the data and see, you, you, you don't even know what you're doing because a lot of decisions you're making quickly and a lot of decisions you're making unconsciously. Really interesting way of putting it. You, you mentioned um, a lot of firms don't have websites where they put their email address on there. So 
a website might exist just to say what it is, but there, no one has any way of getting in touch with any of the principals there. You guys are different. I looked at your website, Harlem Capital, your email addresses are on there. You welcome pitches from founders. Um, what kind of pitches do you get from these founders? Um, do you get a lot of different types of pitches or are they along the lines of what you've already invested in based on uh, people looking at your prior history? It's a mix. I mean, I think the more time you invest, the better off you'll be. We're very clear about what we do. So we invest you know, between 500K and a million in seed rounds of one to 3 million. And we have our valuation target. We target seven to 10% ownership. We invest all across the US. We have these industries that we like, but we are, we're generalists. A lot of firms don't have that level of detail. They may just have their team and they have the portfolio companies. And so the market doesn't really know what you invest in. They have to, to make inferences. And if you don't have that data, you're not transparent, then how will people know? Um, so we are very clear about what we look for. And we know, again, it's always gonna you know, be up to our, our judgment. Um, but in terms of what we've seen, I think we've done two deals that we've gotten inbound for management. There's definitely lower conversion. Uh, you're more likely to do a deal that comes from somebody that you know and trust. But we still think it's very important to be accessible because historically, you know, if, you, if you're if you a great founder, but you don't have the network, or you, you're not in Y Combinator, or you're not in Silicon Valley, you've been effectively locked out. And we think it's very important to open that door. Um, we definitely have a higher conversion on our, you know, VC referral companies. Uh, but every now and then we find a diamond in the rough and we're very happy that we have it. It does take, you know, effort to manage that flow. Uh, but we think it's a very important part of our strategy um, and one that's worthwhile. And one that distinguishes you from others in the industry as well. Um, your team has posted videos explaining different parts of the business as well. One of your co-founders, for instance, uh, documented a pitch that you made to LPs for his show, uh, Hustle on Vice. So the level of transparency kind of goes across the board. Are there any drawbacks to this kind of transparency? Um, I mean, it's a lot of work for sure. <laughs> so, I mean, it just takes time to put out content, uh, but we definitely have received, you know, a great return on our time. Uh, where, where it comes to play is people just know of us. They're top of mind. I mean, most firms, they do connect, networking calls, you know, on a regular basis, maybe every month, every quarter with firms, but you don't get a lot of leverage. You talk to one person at a time, you know, when we put out content on social or get press, you know, thousands of people see it every time. And so it's a much more efficient way to stay top of mind and really solidify our, solidify our place as a diverse lens leader. Um, you know, it can be nerve wracking every now and then you get, you know, a, a, a bad quote or, you know, a publication piece that you're not super excited about. But the nice thing is we have so much volume now that we're not too worried about any one particular piece and just takes mm -hmm. the pressure off. You know, it definitely is high risk. We've seen peers have bad coverage, but if you're doing the right thing, uh, you know, you're doing what you say you're going to do, you treat people well, then, you know, we're going to have a lot more positive negatives. You know, we, you know, all, we're having a lot of positive feedback. We do every now and then have a comment that is, that is bad or whatever, but you know, you delete it, you block it, you keep moving, you don't let it affect you and you just get used to it. Um, and you know, it's not like we're super, super well known. We're, we're well known in the VC community so we can still live our lives pretty normally otherwise. Right, and part of building your profile, of course, is getting um, new talent in as well. I've read that you have, or you've had over 50 interns, which is a pretty large number given that your full-time team currently is, I believe, five people. What did, what did the interns do? How do you manage um, all these interns when you don't have a lot of people in the firm? Mm -hmm. So we had had 58 interns over 10 classes. So we do it three times a year. 
we had 5,000 applicants. So it's about a 1% admission rate. It is very wow. competitive to get in. Uh, so it's a good process though. And I mean, now it's streamlined. We have a pretty set way of, of getting through it. Like we have rubrics, et cetera, uh, but it works out pretty well. Uh, the internship is part-time and it's remote. So it doesn't actually take that much bandwidth once they're in. They're basically working on projects the whole time. They spend a lot of their time helping us with diligence. So they help put us together uh, investment memos. They do research reports for us. They do content. So we have them draft our newsletter. We have them interview people for our podcast. And the good news is these people are, are great. Um, so in large part, it's experienced hires. We'll take one or two undergrads, but usually it's people that are, are working for a few years. Uh, or in business school and can hit the ground running. They've already worked. And so they come and they're just sponges and they, they're overqualified, but they want opportunity because there hasn't been many opportunities in BC. So we've had pretty good success. We've actually hired three people out of our intern program to join us. Two are already on our team. One's going to join next month. Uh, and then 14, including those three, have went into either VC or private equity roles. Mm. So we're literally executing on our mission of helping people get into the door. And then Bunch of others are working at tech companies, working at financial firms. So everybody's doing well and it helps us, right? If we help more diverse people get in the ecosystem, you know, our, our profile increases, they send us deals, they have success and it creates a nice network and a nice feedback loop. Yeah, it's a virtuous circle. Um, so the theme that emerges really is democratizing access to funding, to the industry, to markets. Given all of that, and we're in this weird moment in time right now where you've got uh, retail investors driving up shares of GameStop, AMC, I don't know, American Airlines, Silver. I just wonder what you think about what we're seeing in the markets uh, from the lens of democratizing access to markets overall. There's a lot of changes going on right now. I mean, looks like GameStop and AMC have came back down. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm sure people made and lost a lot of money there. but. I think people are just demanding to get into the capital markets, um, you know, areas where people haven't historically had wide access, people want it. So you're seeing crowdfunding taken off for startups, you know, people that haven't been able to raise VC or want to raise in a more democratic fashion or raise in that way. You're seeing VC uh, funds raised through crowdfunding. You're seeing rolling funds. You're seeing a lot of innovation. I think ultimately more capital is great. It helps more people with ideas get off the ground. and it's definitely high risk, high reward. Um, you know, 90% of startups fail or don't return capital. So it is very tough. But you know, if you can gamble, you can do all these other things and you should be able to participate. I do think, you know, I want to see transparency around, you know, information and want people to know what they're getting into. But I think it's a positive thing. You know, people will get hurt in the meantime, but eventually I think equilibrium will be a point where people can make informed bets and participate. Because uh, what you're seeing is that, you know, over the last 40 years, been tremendous wealth inequality. Um, you know, wages are flat, um, you know, interest rates are low, so you can't really earn in, in the, the bond market or, or the loan market. So what, you, what can you do? You can invest in stocks, you can invest in private, private companies, and you see, you know, all these gains that the rich are getting, but the average person isn't getting. So I understand that there's uh, a desire to get involved, and I think people should be able to get involved. Okay, I guess we're in the stage right now where there's going to be some pain inflicted on on those who um, aren't as prepared for the risks that they're taking. Um, we haven't gotten to your companies yet in your portfolio. You've said that you got about a thousand pitches in 2019, 2000 in 2020. What was the most unique pitch that you saw during that time? That's that's a good question. I mean, definitely um, Cashdrop. Uh, so it's ran by a founder called uh, named Ruben Flores. The company is a mobile e-commerce storefront. 
uh, enable small, medium-sized businesses to, to sell online uh, within 15 minutes. So it's mobile native. You don't need hardware. You don't need a laptop. You really just need your phone. And you can start an online business, completely variable pricing. Uh, so we got introduced to this founder through uh, an MD in, in the Techstars program. Uh, we ultimately met with him and he his vision is so big. He wants to literally buy Sears Tower and name it Immigrant Tower. Uh, he was undocumented, came over when he was 13, eventually got his, his citizenship, uh, taught himself how to code via YouTube, and just like had all these like lofty goals that could back it up. Like he can code himself. Uh, he's a great storyteller. Um, and he's done all these things that are, are very strong. So he definitely is one that stuck out the most. I mean, everyone who pitches him loves him. Uh, he has an HBS case coming out. Our professor who's talked to thousands of founders said, hey, like he's one of the strongest I've ever seen. So he was definitely the most unique. We we moved the fastest we ever did. We we got from first call to decision in like eight days, which is really quick for us. Um, so yeah, he's definitely the one that, that stood out the most. Sounds like he was also the most ambitious as well. Is there an investment that you regret passing on? Yeah, so there's a company, I won't name it, but they're an alternative asset management platform. They allow you to invest in basically collectibles. And the founder's great, uh, super strong, super data-driven, market leader. Um, and, you know, it was tough. I mean, I found out his story is really compelling. He actually, um, you know, got hurt in an accident uh, a while back. And so he's in a wheelchair. Uh, but, you know, great, super smart guy who's really overcame so much adversity and you know is going to run through walls has had tremendous amount of success so you know we we got pretty far along with this one um i was upset that it, it didn't go through you know ultimately the, the challenge was that our uh investor network they weren't comfortable with the platform and then my team didn't get comfortable with the platform uh, what we did was we adjusted our process so now we do investor feedback and deal returns early and so if there's things like deal returns or the market doesn't like the business as much we know that early rather than wasting management's time. So I was really upset with it. I think they were too, but his business has grown well. He's going to be just fine. I just wish we were able to, to do it together. All right. And I wonder with COVID-19, uh, we're now a year into the pandemic. Are you getting different pitches as a result of the environment that we're in and different kinds of founders because of the pandemic? Good question. We see tons of e-commerce and software. I mean, you see the, the adoption of e-commerce, you know, spiking things that would take five years are now taking months um i think because people want to shop at home conveniently uh and that's going to continue even after covid who, who knows how long it'll be but even afterwards people are going to see and demand convenience and software is still pervasive i think you're seeing more companies try to drive towards efficiency um you know trying to increase margins trying to be more efficient etc so those two markets have been really good um in terms of like those companies later stage have been doing well in the stock market. You know, from an early stage, they've been getting tons of financing from VCs. You're seeing rounds get preempted, et cetera. So those are exciting spaces. Um, in general, though, we are seeing you know people of color come to market and have a lot of success. These rounds are moving quicker. So we're excited about that. Uh, fundamentally, though, I mean, we're getting more warm intros. I think in this market, it is tougher to meet somebody from square one and, and get to conviction in a short period of time. Uh, but in general, we're seeing just a lot of tech heavy startups, which we're pretty excited about. What's one question that you ask of every founder that you weren't asking two years ago? That's a good question. Uh, we definitely focus more on unit economics now than we did before. So we'll pressure test their their assumptions. So if they say, hey, we're going to raise a million and a half or $2 million, it's like, okay, how much runway does that give you? 
before mm -hmm. you would let a founder get away with saying, oh, 12 to 18 months. Now you really want 18 to 24 months because you don't know what the environment's going to be like. We don't know if another recession's coming. Really, a lot of uncertainty, even though you know the stock market and everything is going well and there's tons of capital out there. You just don't know. Um, and what we're also seeing is that the Series A bar is increasing. So it's harder to get from C to Series A. A lot of founders are having to do bridge rounds or C plus rounds. So we think it's very important to have more runway. Uh, so it allows you just to have more control of your fate. You don't have to take bad terms. You can grow and get the, the best uh, terms and positioning possible. So that's what we're focused on now. There's other things, but that's been the biggest change uh, because there's just different dynamics at play in the capital markets at the early stage. Jared, really appreciate your sharing us, uh, sharing with us uh, all these different thought processes that you have at Harlem Capital Partners. Jared Tingle is managing partner at the at the firm, and I want to bring in two Cornell Tech students uh, who have questions for Jared. Um, let's go to Deswell Davis uh, for our first question. Deswell. Um, hi, Jared. I um, just want to say thank you for the tremendous work um, that um, Harlem Capital is doing to remove barriers to entrepreneurship for diverse founders. Um, the question I have for you is, you know, raising capital for a fund is very challenging, especially as a minority yourself. Um, early on, can you tell me about a moment or a meeting that was so de demoralizing that you thought to yourself, hey, maybe this isn't it and I should do something different? <laughs> yeah, 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 it's really hard, uh, particularly at the beginning before you have capital. Uh, so I'll frame it this way. Once we we got in front of like one of uh, the founders of private equity at, at a huge firm, and he at the end of the meeting said, if I should get the money, that gave us confidence. This world-class investor now believes in us, we'll be fine. Before that, though, we got, we got beat up a lot. I mean, we had a fund of funds we talked to. We actually went up to a different state. We took the train. And they're like, hey, I don't I don't get it. Diversity is not a strategy. Like what industries are you focused on? And this firm is focused on investing in diverse GPs. But when it came to actually investing in diverse GPs that are investing in diverse entrepreneurs, they had a barrier. And so like the meeting didn't go well. We traveled. We spent the whole day going up there. And that was demoralizing because it's someone that should be inclined to do it and probably went through the same things that we went through uh, when they were getting started. So that was that was demoralizing. We had another meeting at the Harvard Club uh, through a connection, um, and this person is literally yelling at us at the Harvard Club, <laughs> like in the library of the Harvard Club. We're like, man, I literally just want to like crawl under the table and get out of here, but you can't do that. You have to finish the meeting because it's a small world. Uh, you never know. Uh, but we had some horror stories. I mean, we try to like block them out, but those are two of the, the worst things that made us really reevaluate. But fortunately, again, we got the good confidence boost from enough people and figure out how to, to structure our process, our introductions to, to really um, decrease that, uh, that that frequency of those kind of bad meetings happening. And the fact that you're laughing about it now as you're recounting shows that in the end, you learned something from it, you moved on and it all worked out. I wanna bring in another Cornell Tech student, Tole Muawuganga for our next question. Tole? Yeah, uh, thanks Jared uh, for the time as well. Um, my question is basically on, you know, there's this research that shows that, you know, still 80% of venture funding still goes to kind of like free states in the US. And, um, you know, minority funding is still about 3% right now. So I'm just wondering what are some of the ways Highland Capital is, is involved in, especially getting early stage, you know, minority owned ventures, for, you know, at the very early stages. In getting into venture funding uh, at later on, like are there ways you guys are involved in kind of just supporting that ecosystem and building up the startups to come up into the venture? 
Sure. I mean, we're definitely better at helping companies grow than get off the ground. So we are investing at the seed stage. Usually the company has raised angel funding, has been around a few years. There still is a gap earlier, like when people were doing friends and family and angels, like we can't take that risk. Um, I don't believe you get compensated for that risk uh, at all, but I do think it's a void that needs to be filled. And so we are happy that accelerators are moving in that direction. Um, in terms of our lens though, we try to stay as broad as possible. We don't wanna have any constraints that make it tough for us to back founders. So we don't have an industry focus because we wanna make sure we can meet the best founders wherever they are. Uh, we invest all across the US. So out of our 21 investments, five have been in New York state, five been in California. The rest are all across the country, we invested in Indiana, uh, Chicago, Atlanta, all over the place. Um, so we keep a broad lens. Uh, I do think we, we partner with people that um, are focused on this earlier stage. Techstars is great. They have you know dozens of cohorts throughout the US, take about 10 uh, stars per class. And actually five out of our 21 companies are Techstars alums. They're great, their class are very diverse. I think over 50, sometimes 70% are ethnically diverse. So they've been doing the good work. Um, but we like to say, our, our brand, our social media strategy helps. So what we do do is we provide information. We tell people how we invest. We tell people about venture capital, how we make money, why people love SaaS startups, why VCs are focused on one thing versus another. So we're trying to at least democratize information and let people know what we're up to. So, you know, we can't do it all at once. Um, I think as we go through time, we make us there are other initiatives, but the best thing we can do is make great investments and build in public and try to provide as much information to, to the ecosystem as we possibly can. All right. Jared Tingle of Harlem Capital Partners, thank you so much for sharing some of your time with us and telling us about your story of how you got to where you are. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for the invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.